Welcome to Conversations with Creative Vagabonds, Thinkers, and Innovators. This is the place where great minds come to chat, and I am your host, Sandra Lee Schubert, and welcome to the show. married couple and best-selling authors, Linda and Charlie Bloom, it's not so much the things we know about relationships that can hurt us, but rather the things we think we know. Today, they join us to discuss their book, Happily Ever After, and 39 other myths about love, breaking through to the relationship of your dreams. The chat room is open, so please feel free to ask any questions or leave comments for our guest today. So welcome, Charlie and Linda. You are both here. We've got you on the same line. It's very exciting. I'm happy to have you here today. I'm delighted to be with you. Hi, good to be here. Very good. So we've got this great book, and and there's 39 plus myths. There's there's like 40 myths that you've got going on here. And um, I guess my first question, which is probably has nothing to do with the myths themselves, is how did you come up with the number of just the 39 myths or 40 myths? Well, we have more than these, but we're invested in having books that are reader-friendly. And so (laughs) each one is like an hors d'oeuvre. Do you know that they're small bite-sized pieces? And we narrowed it down to the ones that are most most frequently believed by large numbers of people just to zero in and hone in on some of the most popular ones. Maybe right. one day we'll do another collection, but these are the ones that we think are tripping more people up right now. Okay, that's Fair enough. So we can look for a book, too. That's always good to have that. Now, we're coming up on wedding season. It's May. It'll be June. We're, we're going to be right into it. So we've got a bunch of couples that are sort of engaged in the process of preparing the wedding ceremony, the reception, all that kind of fun stuff. But a lot of times they aren't preparing for the actual marriage. So what can you tell these couples that are sort of entering into this for the first time what they might want to think about before they get on, go down the aisle? Um, well, first of all, what I would say is congratulations on making <laughs> uh, probably what many people consider to be the most important choice you'll ever make in your life, which is, whether or not to choose a life partner and, of course, who that person is. That turns out to be the biggest factor in terms of influencing our future. And um, as is true with any other major um, impactful decision like that, uh, there's some risk involved in it. You know, when the benefits are high, the stakes are high, um, there's risks. And to be aware that as much as you love each other now and if you're like most couples, 
when you make that decision to commit to another person, um, you're in a in a state of feeling very helpful and positive, and that's a wonderful thing to have. Um, but not to expect that that will remain, you'll remain in that state uninterrupted for the rest of your life. You're, if you're like many people, you may still be in the stage of infatuation, which um, does tend to color things in, in a way that you don't get an entirely uh, realistic picture of exactly who who you're with. Uh, of course, that that's not necessarily true for people who have been together for a long time or who have been living together for a while. Um, but um, often, after you know, we move through that stage, we begin to see um, that well, things aren't always quite as ideal as I wish they were, and um, not to take that too personally or not to get too surprised by that, but to realize that, okay, um, here's an opportunity to learn something that might be beneficial for us. Okay. okay. So uh, with all the myths that you have and you and we as, as we're looking at people sort of entering into to marriage and you're, you're sort of, I guess, asking them to go into this basically with sort of an open mind and maybe be prepared that what they think marriage might be might be completely different when they're married. I mean, you probably have the statistics on this, but so many marriages end after the first year because people are completely surprised that marriage is very different than they expected. What do you think, what are the myths that might take jar the newlywed or the new person? Like what, what myths do they go into that they have to deal with that sort of ends that honeymoon period for them? Well, the very first myth in the book is the same as the title, and they lived happily ever after. And there are so many romantic notions that just because we love each other, that that's going to smooth things out. We have differences. Of course, everybody has differences, but we love each other so much. So that's going to dilute any trouble that we're going to have. And, of course, love is a powerful, powerful force. But by itself, it's not enough. On top of the love that we hope the couple is going into with an abundant amount of love for each other, they're going to need to learn some skills. They're going to need to learn some negotiation skills and some conflict management skills and some communication skills, and they're going to need to develop some qualities like patience and tolerance and consideration, maybe strengthen their commitment muscles, become more forgiving because we don't always get what we want, and even if our partner loves and adores us, and is really devoted to us. They may be cranky sometimes because they're overtired or hungry or stressed or whatever. So we we want people to have a romantic notion about marriage, about committed partnership, but to have their feet on the ground. It's okay to fall in love. It's okay to have your romantic notions, but they also need to be grounded with some reality that sometimes there's going to be some work required. 
sometimes we're going to have to stretch and and grow through the challenges that being in a committed partnership is going to toss up. And if you believe just because you love each other, you're going to live happily ever after, you're going to have a sharp awakening. So you might as well get it sooner rather than later. Right. Now, do you think, because we were talking a little bit about um, the statistic of that there's more single people, single women now than there ever been, do you think these these kind of myths, or are there other myths, maybe we're, we're going into myths that were not in this book, that are preventing people from sort of engaging in marriage now, or do you think it's just completely something else that's going on in the world? No, I, I really think that the, the mythology that's growing up, um, there's a lot of talk. It isn't just among women, but I hear it among women a lot, that marriage and committed partnership is more trouble than it's worth. Okay. You know, I've got a good job. I can make my own money. I don't need to have a man. I can have a series of relationships. I'm not going to get tied down. I'm not going to get roped in. And there is a lot of talk uh, like that. Um, I am a bit of an old-fashioned girl in that I believe in marriage. I believe that it's a mighty institution. I don't believe that commitment is a, uh, a prison. I believe that a committed partnership is an amazing opportunity to learn and grow about yourself and about people and about how the world works. But I know that there is a lot of talk, and I think a lot of it comes from people who have grown up in families where their parents weren't happy with each other, and so they got some negative images about marriage. And I also think that they have been in some relationships that have had disappointments because their expectations were so extraordinary, like I'll never be lonely again. Um, And when you still have to make some you know, hard choices in your life and you still have to meet some difficult challenges in your life, marriage is a wonderful thing, but it's not a panacea that's going to, you know, handle everything. We're still going to have to handle quite a lot. But how awesome it is to have a partner who will support us and while we're supporting them. I think it makes life easier. It does bring challenges, but it also brings um, loving support to help us through particularly the very difficult times that inevitably happen in every life. If you live long enough, there's going to be some of that. Right, right. So it's it's so in terms of just why people maybe aren't getting into marriage, it, it, there's factors. You know that people are, you know, the at one point you married for money, you married for security, you married for property, or any of those kinds of things, and then it's. I think you you mentioned in your book, it's only in the last couple of generations that we have sort of this more romantic notion of marriage. So now we're sort of in a place where, well, people can sort of women especially can take care of themselves mostly. And sort of the, you know, maybe the romantic notion kind of is wearing thin in some places where people are sort of not buying that as the end all to a perfect life. So, people are sort of thinking differently about marriage at this point. However, you know, what we're talking about here is that once we're engaged in in a marriage, once we're in there, there are still these things that sort of 
we have to work through. These different myths that we've sort of gained from movies or childhood or books or anything that makes a marriage um, the reality of a marriage more of a shock to somebody. So why don't we talk about a little bit more about some of the other myths you have in your book. The first one we have, and they lived happily ever after. So maybe touch upon a couple that you'd like to at the moment. That would be great. Well, um, this one is related to that. Um, You know, you'll notice if you look at the table of contents in the book that a lot of these uh, myths are are very familiar to us because they come out of cultural institutions. They, They may come from books, quotes from books, titles of songs, um, this is this is an example of that, and uh, and that myth is all you need is love, and a few of your listeners may have heard that before. And I think some obscure <laughs> group in England uh, came up with a song with that title. Four people, maybe. I think there were four of them in there. Yeah, funny-looking lads. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's funny how we we hear these phrases and. We we internalize them. We don't really think, well, is that actually true? But it sounds nice, you know. It sounds true, and you know, if you love somebody, um, well, there's another one right there. Um, Sting, Sting song. If you love somebody, set them free. Actually, um, he. Mm -hmm. uh, This is sort of incidental, but he wrote that song in response, uh, in reaction to a very strong response to a song he had written on a previous album. called I'll Be Watching You, <laughs> uh, which was the opposite of that, not setting them free, but possessing them. And um, when we're in love, it, it is sort of like a possession. You know, we just feel so completely consumed with these feelings of, of, of passion and desire, and it, it, everything else seems to fade into the background. So it does seem like all you need is love. Um, except, as Linda pointed out, as it turns out, there are a few other things that you, you might need along the way besides love in order to get you through the night, in order to get you through the lifetime that you're spending with this person. And so, um, as, as she mentioned about you know, conflict resolutions and forgiveness and negotiation, that... Um, even though it seems when you first fall in love with somebody, it's inconceivable that you could ever have an argument or it's inconceivable that you could ever have strongly negative feelings towards that person. But don't forget that virtually every couple who ever ended a marriage through divorce felt that way early on in the relationship. They were absolutely, you know, most of them were absolutely convinced that it's unimaginable that we could ever not feel this way. I could ever not feel this way towards my partner. Um, But human nature being what it is, there are times that we express something less than our best self or our partner does. And, you know, we're not able to be understanding and forgiving for whatever reason. And, after all, when the infatuation stage ends and we stop trying so hard to be the ideal person that our, we think our partner wants us to be, we relax our efforts a, a little bit and allow 
some of our less attractive qualities to come out because, after all, you can't live an entire life concealing certain aspects of your personality. They're going to come out during the time uh, that you're married. And nobody, at least nobody that I've ever met, is perfect in that they don't have any kind of shadowy stuff in, in their life. Um, at some point, we have to deal we have to deal with that. And if we hold on to the myth that all you need is love, then when the inevitable happens, we'll not only feel disappointed, but we'll feel betrayed in some way. Like, wait a minute, this isn't right. There, there must be something wrong here because, I mean, I love you. Why are you treating me this way? Or uh, why am I feeling the way I am towards you? So just to be realistic and understand that we're all human and we all have multiple facets of ourselves, it, it, it takes our partner off the hook. It takes us off the hook, too. Well, I don't have to be perfect. It, it's okay. It doesn't mean I don't. we don't love each other. It just means that there may be more here that we need to develop or learn ourselves. There's another related uh, myth. And I think it's one of the ones that's making it difficult for people to have a really positive image, a shiny, positive image of uh, marriage that people have a fear that they're going to have to give up so much of their freedom. And that's the, the myth that commitment and freedom are mutually exclusive. So... We do have to make some sacrifices, that's for sure. There are some things that we do have to give up. We can't just have the freedom to date other people. Once we commit, we're going to have an exclusive partnership with this person. But that commitment really allows us the freedom to be ourselves, to be cared for and to be deeply known as the unique individual that we are. So I think that people need a shiny new model of what marriage can be and what committed partnership can be. And there's a tremendous amount of um, fear in this gap. People are really clear they don't want to go back, and I, I don't think it would be good even if it was possible to go back to people sticking it out in relationships that really didn't feel right for them, that were painful for them. Sometimes there were hopeless mismatches, but by God, they stuck it out. But I think that there are sometimes people giving up too easily when they get to a rough patch rather than really hanging in there and finding a way to have both people's needs met. Right. Now, so... You know, obviously anybody coming into a relationship is not coming in as a fully formed human being. We all have our shadow sides as you as you, you mentioned. Um and then you get you get into these get into these relationships how do you work that out? I mean, what what happens when you sort of like, you know, your shadow side meets his shadow side and you're kind of like, oh, now what do, now what do we, we do? I mean, you're talking about working that out, but what, I mean, what does that, that mean? Do people then go into therapy? Do they talk it out? I mean, what is the, the process to sort of work through some of these myths 
so that you can get to the other side. And, and I'm assuming that these just kind of keep on coming up as we go along, right? Well, uh, yes to that question. And thank you, Sandra, for, for asking this huge question about, so now what? How do we deal with this? We could spend the rest of this hour and probably about 150 more hours talking about what that process in, involves. And, um, you know, in answer to your question about, well, what, what is, does that mean? Therapy, what do, what do we do with that? I, I think the first, the first step in that process is just to recognize what's happening here and to uh, see that what's happening here is not abnormal, it's not pathological. It's not uh, an indicator that something is terribly wrong with one or both of us or that we don't belong together. It's simply the revelation. It's the revealing of aspects of ourselves that have not been obvious or expressed in the, in the relationship, and this is a perfectly normal part of the process. However, that's not to say that we don't need to deal with it just because it's normal. We do need to deal with it, and what, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that involve? Well, once we acknowledge that, oh, okay, what's happening here is um, these, uh, when we use the term shadow, what we're referring to is has to do with those parts of our self, of our personality, that we perhaps don't feel comfortable with or are concerned that people might judge us for or that are inconsistent with our ideal identity. So if I want to see myself as a, as a strong, loving, accepting, compassionate, patient person, um, then whenever I'm not experiencing anything that's uh, consistent with that, um, I am going to have uh, some judgments about it, and I may be afraid that my partner will have some judgments about it. Um, and so in the process of being together, all aspects of ourselves over time do get revealed. So what does it mean to, to come to terms with that? Well, it means recognizing our humanness and distinguishing, and this is a really important part of the process, Distinguishing what is within me, feelings, desires, needs, um, impulses that are within me from what is expressed in my behavior. So it's one thing to be understanding and accepting of sometimes uh, I have anger, I have anger in me, or sometimes uh, I have uh, impatience in me. Or sometimes um, I have judgments in me. Uh, those are inner experiences and inner feelings. That's different from saying or doing things that are hurtful to another person. Uh, that acknowledging that sometimes I have a, a, a desire to bend the truth or to be less than totally honest. That's different than lying to somebody. Uh, that sometimes I, I get so angry, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, I want to smack you. That's different than being physically violent. We're not at all saying or condoning behaviors, verbal behaviors or physical behaviors 
that are hurtful or damaging to another person. That should not be accepted or tolerated. However, the impulses, the feelings, the needs, the desires, the emotions that are there, fear, anger, sadness, uh, you know, whatever those feelings might be, those are totally human. Everyone has them. So if, if we can make that distinction and draw the line, set the boundaries, you know, I, I, can, I can accept and understand that sometimes you feel this way. Uh, and, and speaking about that honestly is a, a wonderful way to diffuse some of the tensions of those feelings. Um, it's very different than if you just keep trying to repress it because the more you deny it and push it down, the more likely you are to act it out. So a very important step in that process has to do with owning that, with honoring that, with accepting that, with telling the truth about that. When it comes up, not to not to rationalize it or deny it, but to accept it, yeah, that that's there, and I'm telling you this because um, I, I want... Uh, I want us to understand more about each other. Right. So I, I'm looking at myth 19, which seems to go a little bit what, what we're talking about now. Love will heal my past emotional pain. So I, I think, you know, there is some sort of illusion that, you know, if you've had the imperfect childhood and you're sort of looking to get that experience of a happy family or happy relationship that when you come into a marriage you just maybe assume that that's going to happen because you're going to do it differently and then you sort of encounter that it's not so so I I would think that sort of brings up a lot of things for people when they they're sort of assuming that they're now going to get that thing they were missing in their childhood or or maybe a past relationship so maybe you could address a little, little bit about marriage not certainly not handling that piece for you well marriage and committed partnership and a deeply loving committed partnership really can soothe can help us to grow can help us to let go forgive hurts from the past but it's not the the magic wand, you know, it's not the panacea. It's not going to redeem us from all of our past suffering. Some of this we're going to need to do on our own. It's an inside job, and it's a heavy trip to lay on our partner that they're supposed to be our healer and to make it all right, you know, take all the suffering away from the past of my childhood, take the suffering away from my difficult adult relationships that may have gone bust and left me wounded or distrustful. And so I think this is another place where people set themselves up for sorrow and disappointment and frustration and think that maybe they've got the wrong partner and then maybe go and um, leave the relationship, divorce the partner, but really it's the wrong thinking that's getting them in trouble. They can invite their partner to um, to be with them in a caring and compassionate, considerate, respectful way, which is so healing. They can invite their partner, will you be there with me when I get triggered, when you do things or say things or don't do things and don't say things, that set me off, that you bang into these wounded, sore places in me. 
I would like to make a contract that both of us can speak honestly, not to blame the other person, but to say, you know, that really hurts because it's reminiscent of. And that we use what comes up as a growth opportunity. And it takes a high level of responsibility to take ownership of those are my wounds, this is my area of sensitivity, I'm the one in triggered, you didn't do it to me. You know, this is old stuff I had before I even knew you. But it's up. And when you have that kind of a contract that your partner says, I want you to report out to me. Tell me when that happens. That's a good contract to have. Because then you can be there with each other in a way that makes room for all the, the wild things that relationship can be at, at some points. And um, I think when we feel we can, we can bring our whole self, we don't just bring our cheerful, chirpy self, we can bring the part that's sad, we can bring the part that's grieving, we can be the, bring the part that's fearful, do you know, and tell the truth about that. Um, that is a very deeply loving space that we're creating for each other to live in. So at what point do you decide on a contract in, in, in a marriage? Do you go into a marriage with a, con- a contract, or does that evolve as you sort of figure things out? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> both. Uh, ideally, and, and you know, not everybody does this, of course, but ideally it's a really good idea prior to going into the marriage to sit down sometimes with a counselor can be really helpful and, and to talk about what are, what are the things that you really want to include in, in this relationship. What are the promises that you want to make to each other? I know this is sort of like vows, but it's getting more specific in terms of Um, Like, how are we going to handle certain things having to do with children or finances or in-laws? But to really have those conversations, and it's considering how um, important that is, it's amazing how few couples actually do that. And like those three examples that I just gave, those are the – represent the source of probably 80% of of the arguments and – conversations that couples have when they, you know, have disagreements. Um, So, yeah, to go into it with hopefully having established some set of understandings and agreements, but also to have the flexibility to adjust that as time goes on, to tweak the uh, agreements a little bit if if that's needed, because sometimes what we anticipate as uh, what we're expecting turns out to be different than what actually happens. So to have the flexibility to be able to shift gears um, and um, modify some of those agreements. Um, The key thing, of course, is that both partners are on the same page in terms of what they're agreeing to. Unilateral decisions that only represent uh, one person do not work. one of the myths in the book has to do with winning arguments. And when you win an argument, what always is the case is that somebody else 
feels like a loser. And losers aren't happy. And when people are not happy in a relationship, they find ways to express that unhappiness either directly or indirectly. So we really encourage people to have in that set of agreements uh, the agreement that we both have to be satisfied with what we come up with. If only one of us is, we're not done yet. Right. And this is, as you said, this is a process that evolves because you change and you come into a relationship and, and, and things sort of develop. I mean, when children come into the, the picture, life takes on a whole different, you know, direction. So you, you do have to sort of, I guess, be willing to roll with the changes also and, and not be stagnant. And this is our contract and we have to keep to this all the time, every moment. You're absolutely right. It's an enormously creative process. And my husband, Charlie, and I take new vows. We sometimes renew our old vows, and then we add new ones in as needed on Valentine's Day and our wedding anniversary. We don't just assume that we're going to re-enlist every year. We, we take a look and see what are we committed to now. And so we've had to uh, reformulate our agreements and our vows and update them because we're living a growth process. We're changing. You, you said you go through different life stages. Your life changes a lot when you become parents, and then your life changes a lot when you're empty nesters. And there were beliefs that we had that were so strong. I'm the romantic in the pair, so I'm the one that had to get over a lot of my romantic myths. And one Aww. of the ones that we, that I had for a long time, years into our marriage, is if you really loved me, you'd know what I needed and you would give it to me and I wouldn't have to ask you. So that's myth of mind reading. And, oh, did I put myself through a lot of, you know, angst and unhappiness, doubting, oh, it's too bad he doesn't love me very much. Do you know, I didn't think he didn't love me at all very often, but sometimes I would think he didn't love me very much. And I didn't realize that it was my own, you know, buying into my own limiting belief. And I did not realize for the longest time that I was loath to get vulnerable, to stick my neck out, that I had to grow some courage to learn how to do that, to ask for what I wanted. Do you know, I really, I really would like you to wrap your arms around me and tell me that I'm wonderful right now. And what? that it wasn't on his radar screen. It wasn't that he didn't love me. He just doesn't need as much acknowledgement and validation as I need. And, you know, we're just different that way. He's Charlie's a much more self-contained system. And I'm an extrovert and I'm relational and, you know, I, I need more. So things got a lot better when I got over that myth, I'll tell you. When yeah. I started to ask, he said, oh, thank you for asking me. That's easy for me to do. My right. life improves yeah. a lot. <laughs> that, that's funny because I, I was thinking about that one because that was the one that my sister always complained to me about her husband. It was like, he should just know what I want for my birthday. He should just know. He should. And it would just be year after year, it would be like, why doesn't he know? And I was like, just tell him. I said, just give him the photo. But what, what I thought was always funny was that for every year for my birthday, I'd say, say to her, I want this. Like, this is the brand. You know, they, they asked me, what do you want? I'd give them the brand. I'd give them the model. I'd give them the stores they could buy it in. 
because I was very clear what I wanted. And they, they would routinely not get me that. And I just thought, well, that's <laughs> so much about everything. that here my sisters always say, I want my husband to do, give me what I want. But then when it came to somebody actually telling her, this is what I want. She just was not willing to actually do it. It was just a funny paradox to see, watch that unfold in our relationship, but also watch that unfold in her relationship that once she got to the point of even asking, she still wouldn't ask for what she wanted or she still would deny that when it came to her. It would sort of be like, well, it's still not right, you know? It's just, it's just funny how people. There's are. so many issues involved. You know, it's being vulnerable and being willing to maybe have to take a no, and then I had concern that if I if I really asked, I want a lot, and if I asked for all those things, that maybe he I was going to hit his control issue. Do you know? Don't tell me what to do. I don't want to be controlled and. So I had to sometimes tee up the request that I would make, and I understand if it doesn't work for you, I'd rather that you be honest with me and, you know, give me a rain check and maybe later. But we we had an agreement in place where we were going to be really open with each other and honest with each other and ask for what we want and sometimes be willing to take a no, but it was more important that the honesty and the authenticity w- was there, more important than getting what we wanted. Right. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Um, we're just a little over the, the half-hour mark. I have I actually have a question from somebody in the chat room. But before we get to that question, I would like for you to at least tell people where they can find you, and then we'll have a little more opportunities for you to talk a little bit about the work you're doing. So, sure. Um, yeah. The uh... – let me let me give your listeners our um, website. It's really simple. It's uh, bloomwork.com. That's uh, B-L-O-O-M-W-O-R-K.com. And that's where um, they can get um, a lot of information, not just about us, but about relationships in general. We have um, tons of stuff on there. We have video clips. We have uh, archived our um, newsletters going back many years. We have links to um, blogs that we've written over the years. We we blog for uh, Huffington Press and Psychology Today and uh, several other online journals. So uh, yeah, that's that's the best way to uh, to contact us or to find out about us or our work. Okay, very good. So the question that's in the chat room. There seems to be a lot of new ideas about marriage and relationships these days. What are your thoughts on committed, non-exclusive partnerships? And if you have more questions around that question, feel free to ask. But that's the question in the chat room. Usually what people are referring to when they say uh, committed but non-exclusive is that they have one partner that is their primary relationship but they uh, reserve the option, both in the pair usually, to practice polyamory and to be able to have other relationships with other sexual partners. Now, if they can work it out, you know, more power to them. But in our more than 40 years of being in this field, 
we haven't found too many people that have been able to do it gracefully and work it out well. So the issues that come up are about competition and jealousy and feelings of insecurity. And so I am from the point of view that it takes quite a lot to make one relationship sturdy, hearty, resilient, and wonderful. If you start siphoning off energy to other relationships, it can and often does weaken the primary relationship. So that's been my experience. You know, we've been seeing couples for since going back um, 70s and 80s and 90s that it's the very rare couple who can pull it off. But sometimes people have to try it and see if they can do it. And if both people agree to it, I think that that is, beats the um, the arrangement where, you know, people are hiding things because it's the dishonesty and the, the secrets and lies that tend to erode the foundation of the relationship. And if somebody finds you know, an email or something comes to light, it can really be very disruptive. Not that you can't recover from it. it. You can recover, but it takes a lot of work to recover from something like that. And I need to make it really clear that this is not um, a moral judgment on my part. I'm just practical. And from from the practical orientation, I think a sealed container um, has a much better chance of being making it to the great zone of relationship. Okay. And I guess that goes back to, and I'm sorry, I I don't remember the myth exactly that this is, but you talk about uh, the idea of, um, and and maybe I'm I'm wrong about this, but being honest about affairs right off the bat and before the person finds that. So I don't know if that was a myth or a response to a myth. So going along with that, you're you're sort of saying that kind of, one, if you're going to be in that relate that kind of relationship, it should be upfront and clear. Get into a relationship, get into a situation where you're having an affair. I think one of the myths is that if you have a good relationship, you'll never have an affair, which is, I, I guess, also full false. But you, you sort of go more on the, the side of telling the person rather than not telling the person. Am I correct on that? Or Yeah, you are correct in um... – in that, in terms of our perspective on it, and I think both Linda and I, we don't agree on with everything with each other, but that's one thing that we are very much in agreement with because we've seen so many situations where there's been um, sexual misconduct in a relationship, a betrayal, and um, the partner who has violated the monogamy uh, uh, agreement does not acknowledge that, but that information comes to their partner uh, through a a third party. And Mm -hmm. in those cases, the prognosis for repair is considerably lower than it is when the person who has the affair is the one who acknowledges it and uh, preferably early early on in the process. But what we've heard from many, many people is that 
the lies, the concealing, and the withholding of information was more devastating and more damaging to the foundation of the relationship than the actual affair was. And we're not saying that if you if you have an affair and you admit it that you know you've handled it. No, you still have to deal with a lot of uh, you know residual feelings about that. But the possibilities for repair are infinitely more positive when uh, you, you're not caught, when you are the one who, who acknowledges it. Not everyone agrees with this. There's a lot of people, uh, therapists, um, marriage counselors, authors, who have a different position. They don't think that it's necessarily the right thing to do, that um, you know, uh, not always honesty isn't necessarily always the best policy. That's not our view, right. and um, that's you know just our pers- perspective on your perspective and with on that. that. Said, some mm-hmm. couples have a don't ask, don't tell agreement in place. Do you know? And right. every couple has to find their own guidelines that is going to lead their relationship down uh, the path that they want to go on. And so we don't tell people what to do, but we do invite couples into a conversation, and each one of these myths that we've explored has a grain of truth in it, but we're, we're attempting to sort of shake people of don't just automatically accept this as a given Think about it yourself and look deeply inside and see if this is serving you. See if it's true for you. See if it's enhancing your life. See if you're happy and, you know, experiencing more contentment and well-being in your life or whether maybe it's impeding you in some way. And so we're prompting people to take a look at each one of these, not to let anybody shove a script in their hand to live out of, but really make their own choices. So we're we're hoping to prompt a lot of discussion. And people don't have to agree with everything we say. That would that would be foolish to expect. We just want people to be thinking about it themselves and dialoguing, particularly if they have a partner to see is this true for you? Is this working for you? How is this working for you? Does this serve you or does this not serve you? Right. So it, 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 it's always being the process of, again, as we were saying, evolving and folding and coming back to what you originally sort of agreed to and fine-tuning that. Because, I mean, in one of the myths you talk about, you don't necessarily need to disclose um, – well, the myth is you need to disclose all your past experiences in order to build trust, but that may not necessarily be true, but that's different than being in the relationship and, and sharing. So there's there's a, a, a kind of a difference that you don't necessarily have to bring everybody into the relationship now, but when when is there a moment where you have, you might want to disclose something that's happened in the past, I guess? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, I, th- I think that really depends upon what it is that um, is, is provoking one partner to know more details uh, about one's past life. And, and you're making a really important distinction, I mean, that we feel is, is important anyway, and that is, you know, you're referring to what we call the myth of full disclosure, which for many people think, many people think that that means that... Um, I'm obligated to really 
tell you everything that's ever gone on in in my life. And um, what we have found is is that um, we all have a natural, you know, desire to know. Well, most of us anyway, not all. Um, but to know more about like wh- where have you been, what kinds of things have you done, wh- what's your what's your you know past been like. Um, but uh, it's in, it's when we talk about disclosure, what we're referring to isn't so much about what are the past experiences that you've had, uh, although that might be something of interest to to your partner that they feel like they need to know for various reasons. But more importantly, what is your current experience to disclose what I'm feeling right now in this moment, to disclose uh, what my true thoughts and feelings and, and emotions might be so that when my partner asks me, um, like, how are you doing right now? What are you experiencing? You know, what's going on? Um, that they trust that I will give them an honest answer, that I, which takes more time than simply saying, oh, I'm fine, or, you know, giving them some kind of uh, a pre-programmed response. But to really have a level of trust in the relationship that enables both of us to feel like we can depend upon each other to really be honest um, about what, what's going on. Because one of the things that good relationships seem to have in common is uh, that there is an understanding between the partners that they can count on each other to let them know what's going on and and to not just give um, a pre-programmed response, but to really take a moment and say, well, you know, this is what I'm thinking right now, or this is this is how I'm feeling, or you know, I'm I'm having a hard time with this, or I'm really feeling glad about this, or you know, just to be honest with uh, your willingness to disclose what's happening with me now. And in terms of the piece of your question, when you were saying if there's something from the past that needs to be disclosed, how do you know? And the way you can tell is. We're all entitled to have some privacy, but there there's a line that you go over where it's not just privacy anymore, where you're keeping a secret. And you can, it, it's like you try to push it down and it keeps bobbing up, and you try to push it down and it bobs up. And there's fear connected to it. If I told them this, it could somehow damage our relationship. And so the trick of the mind is if I can keep it silent and keep it hidden, it's not damaging our relationship. If you're preoccupied with this and it keeps coming up, you might want to take a look and see whether you want to disclose it and do it away with uh, with remarks that it's it's for the benefit of our relationship that I'm bringing this forward, even if it's difficult for me to say it, even if it's difficult and disruptive for you to hear it. I want us to have a relationship where we're really honest with each other and open about what's going on with us. So if if you find something recurring in your mind and you're afraid to bring it out, that might be just the thing that needs to be revealed. Okay. And 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 I guess you, people always have the option of 
working this out with a professional also and if it's something that's really disruptive and emotional also so you're you're not sort of just dumping a lot of something on on your partner that no neither one of you could manage that's right and we we use the fine sieve of harmlessness mm-hmm. if you take a look at is this going to hurt me to conceal it is it going to hurt my partner to reveal it you want to make the best possible choice sometimes they're not always great choices sometimes you have to find the lesser of the evils and it's often if there's something really big and scary like this it's often helpful to have some counseling sessions to really examine it with some professional to see whether it's something that you want to say that hopefully will enhance your relationship or maybe it's going to be a temporary setback but ultimately will be for the good of the relationship because Sometimes people think that concealing is the least harmful when it can be the most harmful. Right, that's that's true. Um, so we we're, we're actually getting near the end of time. We're we're, we're at six minutes. So the two things I guess I want to ask you are: one, do you have another myth you'd like to share with people that you think might help them right now? And two, I would like you to share a little bit about the work that you're doing in, and so people can find you in your different classes and things that you're, you, where you're going to be over the summer or next year or so, in your lifetime, whatever. Um, sure. Um, one of the myths that I think has gotten a lot of people in trouble comes from uh, the movie Love Story. Now, you probably know as soon as I say that what the myth is. <laughs> Yes, I do. <laughs> what do you think it is? Never love means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> exactly, and that has caused a lot of suffering for a lot of people who think, well, you know, we're we're in love. You know, I love you, so I don't have to apologize, you know, for having hurt you or offended you or done something that is uh, painful for you, and um. It's quite the opposite. When you love somebody, you will naturally feel some deep remorse whenever you do something intentionally or unintentionally that's caused pain to your partner. And you know what? If you're married to somebody and you live with them, that's going to happen no matter how much you love them. It's going to happen. So um, one of the best things that we can do is uh, when when that does happen, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, is to acknowledge what we've done and to express remorse and to uh, offer a sincere, and that's the key word, apology for that. And, and even, you know, we encourage people to even take it a step further, which is to let the person know what was going on with you when you said or did what you did, what caused, What is it that you can learn from this so, you know, to make it less likely that it's going to recur again? But making an effective, sincere apology really doesn't make you less of a, a lovable or respectable person. 
it actually makes you, uh, it strengthens the relationship. It strengthens trust. And it, and it strengthens uh, the quality in, in the relationship that allows both people to be willing to be themselves and to know that even when they do have those experiences that it's repairable. So they feel freer and they don't feel so afraid of making mistakes or saying things that are hurtful if they know that they can clean it up, that they can repair it and and, and move on. So uh, that's one of the most powerful and effective skills and practices that I think any couple can have is the agreement to uh, acknowledge and take responsibility uh, and repair any hurt feelings that they may have contributed to in a relationship. Very good. So what, what work are you doing now? Well, we're going to teach a workshop on May 1st right here in the Bay Area on the myths that trip people up and how to examine those myths and formulate your own beliefs that serve you. We teach at Esalen Institute on the West Coast in California in Big Sur, Every January we come to New England and we teach at Kripalu Yoga Center up in the Berkshire Mountains in Lenox, Mass. And there are other places where we teach too. Anybody can go to our website and see what our schedule is going to be. But we do phone consultation because we have clients uh, that we consult with from all over the country because they come to our classes and want to do some work after the class sometimes or they find us through the books or through our website. So if people want to do any work with us, we're available for phone consultation, and we even Skype these days so we can see each other. <laughs> that's, that's very good. That's very good. We have just about a, um, we actually have two minutes. So do you have a final tip you'd like to offer our audience? My favorite in the whole collection is good relationships require more effort than they're worth. And there's a lot of attitude around about, you know, committed partnerships are demanding, and, it, and it's true. They are, especially in the beginning until they're well established. But I'll tell you, marriage has been the best thing that ever happened to me. It stretched me. It grew me. It healed me. I have learned so much. And I really recommend it. If you take on committed partnership as a growth path, I think that magical and wondrous things are available to us. People put a lot of time and effort into going to school and getting academic degrees and training for their professions and go off for conferences to keep growing their skills about their career, but they don't think that they should have to put the sweat work into their romantic partnerships, that just because we love each other, it's supposed to flow out of that. And really, there are some skills that need to be mastered and some qualities that need to be cultivated, but it's an awesome opportunity to grow into who we can be. Very good. Well, I, I want to thank you both for being on the show today. I think we, we covered just a little bit of what's possible in your book. There are 40 myths. So there's a lot, lot that we didn't cover. So today my guests have been Linda and Charlie Bloom. They are the author of Happily Ever After and 39 Other Myths About Love, Breaking Through to the Relationship of Your Dreams. And you can find out more about them at Bloomwork. Dot com. Thank you for being on the show with me today. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
Hey there. I hope you enjoyed the show. It is really great doing in the world. If you are interested in reaching out on air, online, or in person, let me show you how. I am partnered with some great people, some strategic thinkers and consultants to bring you the best services available. Call me at 347-560-1624 or email me at sandraleeshubert at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you.